0: Hi, welcome to What Chance? I'm your host, Karin Elias. This podcast is about people who have been to prison. It's about their life before and after prison. I talk to educators, social workers, activists, and the formerly incarcerated. I want to find out what happened. Are some people at higher risk? Of going to prison? And what is it like to reintegrate into society? What does the justice system and society really care about? Punishment or rehabilitation? Come, join me. My guest today is Dominique Dupont. He is a community leader, public speaker the Director of Programs at Making Kids Win, the Community Liaison at Theater of War Production, a criminal justice advocate, and he was featured in the HBO documentary, Raised in the System. Hi, Dominic. Welcome.
1: How are you doing, Karim? Pleasure. Thanks for having me. I'm
0: glad you can be here. You know, I didn't grow up in New York. And when I came to New York, I was really fascinated about all the different neighborhoods in New York City. So I'm curious, what area did you grow up in?
1: East Flatbush in Brooklyn.
0: In Brooklyn. I actually lived in Brooklyn for some time too. And when you think about your childhood, what are some memories of things you really liked, you enjoyed doing?
1: One of the things I enjoyed doing was uh, swimming and riding bikes. uh, Those were two things and also playing football. So those are a few things that I enjoyed doing when I was younger, growing up in the community.
0: So outside hanging out with all the other kids. I remember that too. I think childhood has changed. People spend so much more time on these indoor devices these days. There are great things we all remember about our childhood, but I think we all have challenges. And if you think about the challenges when you were growing up, what would that have been?
1: Yeah, there were there were tons of challenges. Unfortunately, poverty was one, uh, my environment, you know, just coming up in a community that was over-policed and, you know, had huge challenges. I grew up in the height of the crack epidemic. So I saw a lot of people suffer trauma and just go through, you know, a lot of terrible things because of addiction. So Seeing those things definitely had an impact on me, and it was a tough time growing up in the early 80s.
0: And what was your reaction? If this was your neighborhood, how did you stay out of that sort of stuff?
1: I was able to do really well. I I grew up in a 2 family parent household. I had a twin brother and a younger sibling, my sister Cynthia, and we had the benefit of having good parents who cared and did not want to see us become part of some of the things that were happening in our community and our environment. So that's how I was able to stay focused for, you know, a significant amount of time until I ran into some hurdles and, you know, ultimately ended up in prison.
0: So you had a supportive family. That was really important. And you went through the school system, but something yeah. happened.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I went through the public school system at that point in time, I you know, I had some challenges with learning and Right now, they identified as social promotion, but I was sort of like just being passed through grade to grade in hopes that I would, you know, be able to do better with myself. And ultimately, I didn't do well in school and I got to the sixth grade and was really close to being left back. And at that time, my mother took me out of the public school system and put me in a private school system. And there, thankfully, I thrived and had the ability to do better because the classroom settings were smaller and teachers were able to give more attention to people who had some of the challenges that I had coming up as a, as a young person. I did well, graduated from high school, went on to a seminary and college in Baltimore, Maryland. Had been on a mission field in Africa and in Mexico and came back to New York on a college break and got into a situation where my twin brother was jumped by several teens. I brought a firearm to an already lit situation and ultimately was arrested, charged, and convicted for murder in the second degree.
0: You went to prison? Yes. That must have been, or let me ask you, how was that? Because it seems like you had overcome some challenges, tried to not get stuck with some of the issues in the neighborhood you grew up with, and then despite all the interventions, this happened.
1: Yeah, you know, that's how life is, you know, one bad decision, one bad choice could ruin your life or affect your life and possibly the lives of others for a very long time. And and that's what happened. You know, my life was severely affected and people in the community were affected by my decision-making. And that's just something that, you know, I had to deal with as I served a sentence of 25 years to life in, in a maximum security
0: prison. Now, you were 19 when you went to prison the height of your young life where you probably had lots of plans.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, like I said, I had graduated from high school, was in college. Uh, I was working full-time, going to school full-time and, you know, things changed in an instance. So all of those plans, as you mentioned, were, were definitely off the table at that point. And I just had to deal with the fact that I was now serving a life sentence in prison and try to figure out what I was going to do with my life as I was serving life.
0: Yeah, you know, I can't even imagine, you know, being 19 and going into prison and having all your plans changed, how, and you seem to be such a grounded person. So I'm wondering, how did you do this? How did you manage to, you know, keep your sanity, to keep your hopes up?
1: Yeah, no, thank you. That's a a really good question. Uh, The way I managed is um, I relied on my faith, my family, and my freedom. And I acknowledged that everything else that would happen in this place or in my life was a minor distraction. I needed those three core things to stay grounded. Um, I needed to make sure that insanity didn't creep in on me. And I was able to, you know, thankfully, effectively do that by way of relying on those three cornerstones to to uh, stay focused on the important things.
0: How soon did that happen because I'm imagining you go into prison you're seeing a totally different situation than you're used to right and you have to adjust to all of this new rules all these people you don't know. Um how long did it take you to find your way sort of?
1: It didn't take long, you know, like I said I, I have a really good family, they instilled values and morals in me. I had integrity. Um, but you can have all of those things and make one bad decision that could shift the trajectory of your life. And that is essentially what happened to me. So I used those things that my parents instilled in me and added those other three components um, the moment the handcuffs went on. Those are some of the things that I was dealing with and trying to you know, figure out. It was immediate for me. I realized that my parents didn't raise me to spend the rest of my life in a cage and I immediately was trying to figure out how I got here I knew that I was going to be there for a long time but figure out was there a possibility that I could ever make out of here uh, referring to prison
0: and at some point you got involved in the HBO documentary "Raised in the system and can you talk a little bit what what "Raised in the system refers to
1: Yeah, thank you. So my uncle Michael K. Williams, who's known for some of his famous roles in The Wire and as Omar Little and Chalky White and Boardwalk Empire, uh, was finishing up a series for a show called Black Market that was on Vice. And he was having a conversation with a friend and was trying to figure out why so many of his young friends were in prison and you know, how is that happening? And one of his friends, a really good friend of his who's a producer on the, sh- on the set said, wow, that sounds like the school to prison pipeline. And Michael said, wait a minute, the what, the, to the what, to the what? Like, how do you take those words and put them in one sentence? The school to prison pipeline? Are you telling me that there's a pipeline from schools to prison? And he said, we need to investigate this. So Michael went on a journey to figure that out. And I, being one of the young people who had been affected by the criminal justice system and had been justice involved, said, you know, listen, we we need to look into this. And that's how they came about by doing the documentary Raised in the System.
0: And so when we're talking about school to prison pipeline, we're talking that children like teenagers somehow do something in school that the criminal justice system thinks that should be punished and then they are arrested?
1: Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's one aspect of it. The other aspect of it is kids who come from certain communities are treated differently. Um, we think poverty has a lot to do with that. I personally think poverty should be a crime. Uh, we also have situations where race and class affect how kids in one demographic with zip code is, you know, police differently affected differently than, than others. And um, that was a huge problem in my community and other communities of color.
0: And when we are talking about school to prison pipeline, what ages are we talking about?
1: The ages varied. You know, we saw situations featured in a documentary where there was a A nine-year-old boy, a 10-year-old boy who got into an argument because of which parent, you know, the parents were separated, which parent he wanted to spend the night with. You know, there was an argument that ensued behind that. The neighbors called the police. The police arrived. The police got there. And this nine-year-old boy shoved the cop, you know, just trying to get to his parents that he wanted to spend the night with. And he was arrested for that. And things like that happening deeply disturbed uh, Michael, deeply disturbed me. And, you know, we wanted to do something about that. So we've been going all around the country prior to COVID, screening raised in the system with law enforcement agencies, with district attorney's offices, with people on parole and probation, having a conversation with specialized units designed to help juveniles and we wanted to shift the culture and deal with some of the challenges with regard to denial and justice. And those are some of the things that we were doing. And those are some of the things that we were seeing and able to document that were happening from schools, from young children's homes. We felt that that needed to be addressed.
0: And it does need to be addressed. I can't imagine, you know a grown-up should be able to deal with a nine-year-old in a different way, right? And I'm wondering, as you went around the country and talked to all these different people and organizations, what was their reaction? What did you hear from them?
1: Well, you know, we heard that things like that um, shouldn't be happening. The problem is, is that they were happening, and they are happening, and we needed to find effective solutions and ways to look at laws and policies that are in place that would even allow something like that to go on. Uh, A few weeks ago, I saw a case on TV where there was some young girl who got into a dispute. I think this was in Buffalo or Rochester and she was maced. This was a 10-year-old by five adult police officers. And I said to myself, as I saw these five adults who were charged with the responsibility to protect and to serve, You can't deal with a 10-year-old girl. The best way to handle it is the mesa, And then I said it and cuff her and, you know, put her in shackles like a dog. I I just said, you know, would you handle your children like that? I I just think that there's not enough empathy. There's not enough love going around. And there's more people concerned about the law than being concerned about love. And we need to change that. We need to work on that. And those are the things that Michael and I started to communicate when we got to these places. And thankfully... We connected with a lot of elected officials and people who are working in the area in law enforcement agreeing with that. It was just a matter of, you know, some action steps and, and seeing how the policies that are in existence can be changed to deal with that in an effective manner.
0: Yeah, and I, I'm glad to hear that people think that this is wrong. Now, I'm also wondering, we've heard these things before because, you know, since we are in this pandemic A lot of things have come to the surface for people who haven't been hearing this stuff before, but the stuff had been there for a long time, and we have changed policies before. Is it enough? I'm wondering, what else do we need to do? Because it sounds like something is missing on a human level. Something is missing in the connection to communities that adults, I want to say Lose their cool. I don't know when a kid sets them off, and they don't know how to behave. It's not just a question of policy. What else do we need to do? What can we do? What can be effective?
1: I think there are a bunch of other things that are interconnected with some of the things that we see happening. You heard me talk about it earlier. You know, it's poverty. It's the environment. It's children growing up in food deserts. What we identify as food oases, uh, redlining. I think there are tons of things that are interconnected with um, some of the things happening in these underserved communities. The agencies that we rely on to get help and to get us out of these situations often don't provide the level of help that we would expect or think or need to have somebody be successful. And we see a lot of uh, politics going on. And I think people are paying more attention to politics than they are to people and understanding that these are real lives, and and people really need help. And I just don't think that that's happening enough. So I think that we have to look at things from a, a holistic perspective and look at the big picture and start to little by little unravel all of these other things and spread the pieces out on the board and do better. So yes, I couldn't agree with you more that it's tons of things. It's not just this, you know, one kid. It's not just policy. It's but I do agree that it's policies and laws that help fortify, you know, some of the destructive things happening in our communities.
0: Yeah, and here I'm thinking. So we have institutions that are supposed to be dealing with these things, and they can have policies, and somebody can enforce them. But well, what about the regular person? You know, do you have any ideas or suggestions? The regular person who might not live in these communities, who might not have dealt with issues like that, but hears about it. Is there a way to do something?
1: I think first we should ask ourselves, how complicit might that person be? Like, are you just okay because, you know, this doesn't affect your zip code because you're in a tax bracket that You know, this doesn't affect you. So I think we should ask ourselves that. Is the reason why you don't see something or not aware of something on purpose? Or do you need to be educated about what's happening? So those are the things that I would offer as a suggestion for people who haven't experienced what I've experienced or tons of other poor or Black people have experienced.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. I think we are living at times where we can't say anymore, well, I didn't know about this, right? You can hear about it and you can go and ask more questions. You can read, you can listen. There are documentaries like the one your uncle made. I have heard more talks on the radio in general about the criminal justice system, the prison system, the issues in school. You know, I grew up in Austria and I remember coming to New York, that was 30 years ago, and okay. seeing something on TV about police officers going into school and arresting students. And I was pretty shocked because that, you know, in my opinion, would have never happened in Austria. Why is a police officer going into school to deal with a behavioral issue? That is the issue the school should be able to address. What about education psychology? So, and I think it is true, we know that there, you know, when we talk about poverty, that it happens in some areas in New York City, because they are forgotten areas. There is a little bit of this, not just a little bit, I think a lot of this opinion in the US, you have to pull yourself out by your own bootstraps. But what if you don't have any boots? Right. And I'm also curious, because you have all this energy to advocate for these causes. But on the other hand, you also had a lot of struggles. And when you came out of prison, coming back to society, were there challenges for you?
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean, I don't think anyone sheds over two decades in prison without, without any challenges. I think that that would be misleading, also downright irresponsible to suggest something like that. But yeah, that definitely has some challenges. Thankfully, though, I had, you know, support of wife, I had a support of family members that were able to help me get through some of those things. And, and I got a chance to see that, you know, even with support, there were some things that I went through, but there are tons of other people that have it worse than I do, because not only are they going through those things, but they don't have any help. They don't have anyone to help them get through those tough times. So, yeah, you know, there are challenges for most people who haven't been to prison. So, um... Yeah, but, you know, we have to find a way to effective ways to be able to deal with what life is serves, And sometimes it's cold. Sometimes it dishes out stuff that's cold. But, you know, we have to find ways to what I often say is prison hasn't made me bitter. It's made me better. And that's really what this is about for me.
0: And, you know, that is also a really good point, because I think because of your experience, might you not be a more credible person to some young people who are struggling with maybe being in neighborhoods where it's challenging because there is a lot of poverty and the education isn't so great. Maybe the job options aren't so great. And the people who are talking to them might be people that they are not really seeing as mentors or as role models.
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree more.
0: Now I'm wondering, did the pandemic stop you with your project of going around and talking more about the documentary and the issues it raises?
1: Yeah, it did. It sure did because, you know, it's, it's hard to get people in one room without socially distancing or just being fearful. So yeah, but essentially what we did is we shifted the conversation to doing a lot of action in these underserved communities, doing food drives, giving out PPE equipment, Uh, giving out coats for the winter, things like that. And all of those things were done outside, socially distant. So even though we haven't been able to screen a documentary like we did prior to the pandemic, we have been able to take action steps and still be a vibrant force in these underserved communities.
0: Yes, and thank you. I really appreciate your energy and the positivity you have. You know, you're saying how there's a challenge that's really just a chance to overcome it. And I'm wondering for yourself, if you're thinking about what's joyful in life, what are you seeing as bringing you joy right now? And what are you looking forward to in the next maybe two, three years?
1: I'm high on life. So, me being joyful is connected with the fact that I'm living, I have life, I have breath. And when you have those things, you have hope, and you're not hopeless. And I've been in places where I've been hopeless and it's been dark and and I felt like I don't know what tomorrow looks like. So when I get out here and I have an opportunity to do the work that I'm doing and to be able to live and to be free, uh, I could not be happier. Uh, with regard to what my plans are in the next two to three years, is one to continue the work that I'm doing. I don't think it stops. Um, I think that we will always face challenges where we need to identify with people who have skin in the game and to be able to to be a servant is the things that I plan to be doing in the next two to three years outside of that we'll be working on a few film projects with Michael and focusing on reimagining what community policing looks like and you know highlighting some other things that are happening in our communities and documenting those things and so those are the things I expect to be doing in another two to three years so
0: Yes thank you for sharing that and I wish you all the best for that may you thank be you. successful and i'm also wondering is there an organization something you want to mention that people can support or donate to i
1: would just think that groups like exodus transitional community making kids win nyc together um those are the groups that stand out to me that i do a lot of work with on a daily basis and We would just love to have the support. And um, if there's any other additional information, you know, someone may want to reach out to me, I'd be more than willing to help out or or help them get a better understanding of the work that we're doing.
0: Yes, thank you so much. And thank you so much for this conversation. And I wish you all the best.
1: Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate that. It was an honor, Corinne.
0: Chance is created in New York with cover art by Hernan Braberman and original music by Max Elias.